Welcome to Lompoc Foursquare Church's podcast. Enjoy the message. Hey, as we as we keep kind of walking through the book of Galatians, I I, I want to remind you again that this is a letter uh, written to a group of people that the Apostle Paul really loved. And we've been going through almost verse by verse, kind of piece by piece. And sometimes when you go through piece by piece, if you're not careful, you can lose sight of the what's called the meta narrative, the overarching theme of what Paul is communicating. So as we continue to talk about the law, continue to talk about the promise, I want to remind you this morning that one of the purposes of Paul's letter uh, especially as we get to this part of the letter, is he is inviting people to change their view of, their perspective on who God is. Everything Paul is writing is writing based in love, and he's trying to draw people who had kind of come to the place where they were viewing God through this legalistic structure to this place where they would see him as a loving father, because how you see God radically impacts how you relate to him. So, uh, we want to keep in mind that Paul is is really calling people to this renewed perspective on who God is. So we're we're going to kind of land the plane on some of his thoughts about law and and the promise, and then he's going to begin to pivot toward what awaits us as children of God in something that he calls our inheritance. But there are a couple of things that we want to remember from our earlier conversations because they kind of set the stage. Um, primarily when he's talking about the law. So the law is the Old Testament Jewish law, and the law had two primary functions. Uh, We've covered this together, but as a reminder, um, the law showed people their sin. That was its job. It taught God's people how they were supposed to live and then held up a mirror and said, look in the mirror and see how you're doing. And that mirror showed uh, that we had dirty faces. Uh, You don't wash your face with a mirror. Uh, you need something else. You need soap. You need water. So the law was was showing us the standard, how far we missed the standard, but also looking forward to how we would experience um, wholeness. So the second thing the law did is the law prepared the way for Jesus because everything points to Jesus from Genesis to the book of Revelation. It is all directing our attention to Jesus because Jesus is how we come into relationship with God the Father. So The law was good and the law was helpful, but the law was always meant to be temporary. And so to explain this yet again, I I feel like Paul is like, come on, guys, I really need you to get this. So he keeps using different images or illustrations to explain to the Galatians the difference between the law and the promise. And so now he's going to use the image of something called a child guardian. He's going to reach into Roman culture and pull out an image that is very familiar to those who are reading. So let's jump into chapter 3, verse 23, and see what he has to say. Before the way of faith in Christ was available to us, Paul says, we were placed under guard by the law. We were kept in protective custody, so to speak, until the way of faith was revealed. Let me put it another way. The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. And now that the way of faith has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian. So when Paul is using the word guardian, he's not talking about um, like a Roman centurion, someone who is is armed and, and stationed outside of a gate to keep people out. He's talking about what would have been familiar to those in a Roman household. Uh, of the child guardian. So the child guardian in a Roman household was a trusted slave, had had healthy, respected status, but was a slave still. 
And that slave's role was to look after the children in that household. So uh, that, that slave would watch over them during the day, would take them back and forth to school, would uh, tutor them after school, would protect them, and also, if necessary, would discipline them. That was the role, Paul is saying, of the law with, of Israel until Jesus came. It was meant to protect, it was meant to provide, to preserve, to teach, and at times also to discipline. The, the guardian was not the child's father. The guardian was just a caretaker. Jews weren't born into the law. Following the law was not what made them Jewish. They were born into the promise. So the law, the guardian, was something that stood between them and their father to help bring them to a place of faith. So the law didn't give life. The law regulated life. It looked after them like a guardian would. And the responsibility of a child guardian in a Roman household was always really to work himself out of a job. He, he would bring them, uh, bring the child to maturity. He would, he would walk alongside them until they grew up. But once the, guard, once the child came of age, the guardian's job was done. I think the, the closest thing that we would have would be an au pair or a nanny um, or a babysitter. Every, anybody ever had a babysitter growing up? You had a babysitter. Now, that babysitter had a very important function, but there was a point in time where you should no longer have needed a babysitter. So my first job uh, was at the hardware department at Sears in Santa Barbara, back when there was still a Sears in Santa Barbara. And so I had to go in and sit down with the manager of the store and the manager of the department and pitch myself for why they should hire me. And so if my interview went something like this, hi, you know, my name is John, I'm a senior at Dos Pueblos High School, I really want to work here, and I've brought my babysitter because she's watching out for me, I probably wouldn't have gotten that job. When Wendy and I got married and dreamed about our future together, we didn't say we're going to buy a house and, and it's going to have four bedrooms, one for me and you, one for a daughter, one for a son, and, and one for my babysitter. Wendy would have been like, get out of here, we're not getting married. There comes a point in time where the babysitter's role, the guardian's role is complete. And that's what Paul is trying to explain was the role of the guardian. The law was supposed to prepare Israel for what Paul calls the way of faith. It was supposed to prepare them for the arrival of Jesus, something that was coming, and at that point when Jesus showed up, then its role would be fulfilled. Now, when, when the Roman child came to maturity, became an adult, there was a ceremony, and that child would come forward in, in the clothes of a child, and those who were assembled would then dress them in the robe of a Roman citizen. They would give them the toga that said, this is no longer a child. You would look at them and see they have come of age. Now hold that picture of changing your clothes as you grow up in mind as we read this next section of Galatians. Verse 26, he says, you are all children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. All of you who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ, like, like putting on new clothes. He's saying you you reached a point of maturity where you trusted by faith in Christ and you grew up. And so God dressed you differently. He goes on, verse 28, to say, there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs. And God's promise to Abraham, that thing we've been talking about all along, is for you. 
So Paul says, we come to a place of maturity where we put our, our faith in Christ and we're joined to his family in baptism and we're putting on new clothes. So, so like that child growing up, you and I make a decision to step out of a particular way of relating to God as somehow out there governed by our de- behavior, the relationship being governed by our hate behavior, and we step into this more intimate, mature relationship and new things become available to us. You can see the foreshadowing of this as you read the Old Testament. So in the book of Isaiah, which looks forward to Christ's coming, he says in chapter 64, verse 6, he says, all of us have become like one who was unclean. All our righteous acts are like filthy rags. He's saying, under the law, no matter matter how hard we try, no matter how we posture ourselves, no matter how hard we work, our clothes are still like, like filthy rags. But then he says there's coming this point in time where that changes. Chapter 61, he says, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has arrayed me in his robe of righteousness. And Paul goes on in Colossians 3, if you want to read about this more deeply, to speak in detail about how we change as we come to Christ, not only externally, but internally, and how we are seen differently by God. We, we talked three weeks ago about how we are dressed in robes of righteousness, that what has always been true of Jesus becomes true of us when we acknowledge our sinfulness and trust in Christ for our salvation. Now, now this is really important. Um, Paul says that as this happens, he says, you are all God's children. Now, now Paul is using two different words as he's talking about children in this passage. One word means very young, like an infant, but the other word is better translated in English as adult sons. So Paul says, you come to this place where you trust in Christ and you are adopted into his family as adult sons. Remember what he said, you don't have to because I'm going to tell you, in verse 15, he says, dear brothers and sisters, that's the people to whom he is writing. He says the same thing in his opening of chapter 1. Dear brothers and sisters, as you read it in your Bible, it may, see, may say brothers. But if it says brothers, you're going to see a footnote. If you look at that footnote, it will tell you it's better translated in English, brothers and sisters. Why is that important? Because when you remember he is writing specifically to brothers and sisters, and he says that you are being adopted into God's family as adult sons, it means both men and women become adult sons in God's family. Why is that important? In our culture, it's not very. But in Roman culture, it's critical. Because only the adult sons in a family had the right of inheritance. So what Paul is saying here though it seems normal to us, is completely countercultural in the Roman Empire. He is actually elevating the status of women in the church, those who have surrendered their lives to Christ, as co-equal to men before God, and in particular, in their position as heirs, meaning that everything a man would inherit from his father, a woman would inherit as well in the family of God. All of the blessings that Paul is getting ready to talk about are equally dispersed to women as they are men. Completely, completely countercultural in the context in which 
Paul is writing. Now, Paul, in chapter 4, is going to get to, he's going to begin to dive into what it means to have an inheritance in Christ, and we'll unpack that together uh, in a little bit. But then Paul goes one step further. Like, he's rocked the boat enough with this men and women thing, but he says, listen, other other cultural boundaries, cultural distinctives, cultural lines that you are living alongside of, those are also done away in the family of God. Well, John, where do you get that? Well, I get that right here when he says there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. If you remember why Paul is writing this letter, it's because a group of Judaizers came down from Jerusalem, were trying to corrupt the teaching in the church to tell the Galatians, that they had to become more Jewish in order to belong. And those Judaizers came from the sect or the party of the Pharisees. And the Pharisees had a prayer that they would pray on the regular. And the Pharisees' prayer sounded like this. I thank thee, God, that I am a Jew, not a Gentile. I am a man, not a woman, and a freeman, not a slave. Billy Graham said, the ground is equal at the foot of the cross. It's even. And Paul would agree. So he is writing to the church in Galatia and saying, I don't care what the cultural norms or distinctives are outside of your family. They do not apply within the family of God. In the family of God, we are equal in his eyes, and so we should also be equal in the eyes of one another. And that that understanding should govern our behavior. God's family does not have hierarchies of people. Rome did. Rome did. But the family of God, Paul is saying, is not meant to. Married people are not holier than single people. Able-bodied people are not more valuable than those with disabilities. The, the poor don't have less to offer than the rich. The citizen doesn't matter more than the immigrant. And racial distinctives don't determine place. If we're honest, and we're always honest, we need to acknowledge that historically this has been a great, as great a challenge to the American church as it was to the Galatian church. And so we need to, as a people, be praying the prayer of David, search my heart, O God, and see if there is e- any evil in me, any evil way in me. This is what Paul is, is pulling for. A family of God who understands the value in every expression of life that realizes that that distinctives are part of how we are created by God, but not how we are valued by God. Paul says we've been baptized into one family and we have one father. Why would Paul pull baptism into adoption? When people were baptized, it was symbolic in culture of leaving one life to begin another. Water baptism for the early church and other religions that practiced it was not simply saying, I love Jesus, so I'm going to get wet. It it was saying, I am walking away from one life and beginning a brand new life. And it often meant the breaking 
of family structures or cultural relationships. When you read in Acts chapter 2 and you realize the church had everything in common and they were caring for people so beautifully, it's more than just they all of a sudden had the feel goods, let's give our money away. People were surrendering their lives to Jesus, being baptized and being ostracized, cut out, disowned by their families. This is how radical it meant in the early church to enter into the waters of baptism. I am leaving everything behind and joining this new family. And it also symbolized, as we know, moving from death to life, going into and then out of a grave. So Paul is saying to the Galatian church, listen, you may look different, you may sound different, you may act different, you obviously believe a little different, we're going to fix that, but you are one united family adopted equally before God. We retain All of our unique distinctives, those don't get done away with. They're they're part of how God has created us. I didn't stop being married because I became a Christian. Married people are still married. Single people are still single. I'm still Scotch-Irish. But all of those distinctives became secondary to my allegiance to Jesus and the family in which he has placed me. So my primary allegiance now has to drive how I relate to my brothers and sisters in Christ. And God have mercy on my soul if I ever think that I am better than any of you. And God have mercy on your soul if you ever behave as if you are better than someone else in or outside of this room. This is what it means to be adopted into a family. This is what Paul is saying, meaning when he says there's neither male nor female, Greek nor Jew, slave nor free. Were there? Of course there were. But not within the context of God's family as it relates to our inheritance as his sons and daughters. Tracking with me? Okay. Because I didn't want to do that again. As members of God's family, we are all equal heirs of his promise. So, as we wrap up chapter 3, and now we're going to begin to head into chapter 4, remember... This is a letter, right? So, so we don't stop one thought at the end of chapter 3 and begin a new one at the beginning of chapter 4. There is continuity of thought to beginning and end. Chapter breaks, the, the chapter divisions in your Bible and, and which verses where, that, that wasn't input until about 700 A.D. And that was just to make referencing easier. So if you and I are talking about Galatians, we didn't have to start at the front and go, count 19 times that Paul says grace, and that's where I'm reading right now. We can go, oh, chapter 4, verse 1, yay. Paul is continuing this theme. He hasn't changed his mind, but he's still still talking about how we orient ourselves toward God and our relationship with him. And over the next nine verses, he uses the word child or children seven times and the word slave six times. Child is connected to the promise, slave connected to the law, and he is inviting his friends in Galatia to choose the nature of the relationship they want to have with God. Do you want to relate to God as a child or as a slave? So he's unpacking it now. So now, he's, now it's a different metaphor, right? We've just done the guardian. Now he's talking about slaves and children. Verse 1 of Galatians 4. Think of it this way, guys. If a father dies and leaves an inheritance for his young children, those children are not much better off than slaves until they grow up even though they actually own everything their father had. So Paul's going, let me me explain this to you. Explain what? 
explain the issue of an inheritance and the people of God. The young child who, who represents Israel, who is waiting for an inheritance, is really no better off than a slave. Why? Because they have no access to that inheritance. They can't do anything with it. They have the promise of an inheritance. They, they possess it in theory, but not in practice. I can't go out after church today and spend anything that I'm going to inherit from my mom. Why? Because my mom's alive. It is hers. It's not mine. It's not yet under my control. This is the, the thought that he is appealing to here. He says, listen, they remain under guardianship until they're grown and able to inherit. Freedom is coming. It's part of the promise, but it isn't here yet. The master still commands the slave, and the slave controls the child. Paul says, my paraphrase, let me make this super clear. Verse 2, they, the children, the young children, have to obey their guardians until they reach whatever age their father has set. That's the way it was before Christ came. We were like children. We were slaves to the basic spiritual principles of this world. Look, Israel, he's saying, look, guys, there's, there's a time that was set by the master where the nature of our relationship as slave to master, as servant to master, as young child to father is going to change. Israel had lived under guardianship before Jesus came, and he says they were slaves to the basic principles or the basic spiritual principles of this world. This is another one of the places where the English kind of does us dirty because Paul is using two different words for children. One is young child. The other, again, is adult son. So right now he's speaking of young children, and he's pairing them with a phrase called uh, basic or elemental spiritual principles. So he says you were slaves as children, as young children, to the basic spiritual principles. Basic principles, that, that phrase in Greek, basically means the ABCs. A, B, C, D. If you can't, somebody else can help you. I think you know where we're going. Because you were so young, such young children, he's saying, God made it super simple for you to engage with him spiritually. Follow these laws, observe these feasts, worship on these days, and get forgiveness this way. You were like little kids, so you only needed what little kids need. Basic principles. You teach a two-year-old to use a fork. You don't teach them to drive a car. Correct? Some of you are looking at me like, no, man, my kid was driving at three and a half. I mean, with my kids, it was like, you stop pooping your pants and we'll try, we'll try something a little bit harder. This is what Paul's saying here. He's saying, listen, when you were immature, when you were young, when you were little, God put things in place to guide you. But you don't teach your kids the ABCs so that at 55, they can sing the ABC song. This is a building block. You want them to be able to read and to write and to communicate because that's the bedrock of everything there else, else they're going to need. Paul is saying, so it was with the law. You were immature, so God gave it to you in little, little chunks. But that was never the way it was meant to stay. You just had it because you weren't grown up yet. It watched over you. It protected you. It cared for you. But it was pointing to something that was to come. Verse 4, I can just see Paul going, come on, here, here it comes, guys. I'm going to land it here. He says, when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law. 
so that he could adopt us as his very own children. His very own children, that is the phrase, his own children, adult sons. So he's talking about what was, young children, what Jesus did, and this adoption into his family as adults who inherit, whether male or female. Why was this the right time? We don't know. Paul Paul doesn't tell us. He just says it was the right time. Maybe it was because it was the height of the Roman Empire and they had done such a good job with their infrastructure that that missionary expansion was going to be easy because the roads were great connecting the cities. Maybe it was because they had created the the language of the world where Greek and Latin were spoken over two-thirds of the globe. And so the gospel came. We don't know. And Paul would say it's really not important. What's important is there was a moment in time where God sent Jesus to buy our freedom so we could be adopted as his own children. Remember what he's saying. Guys, do you want to relate to God as a father or a master, as a child or as a slave? And this language of buying freedom, that's language of the Exodus. And if you remember the story, Israel had found themselves in slavery in Egypt. God had told them it was going to happen in Genesis 15, and after a long period of waiting, God sent Moses to redeem his people. And the word redeem means to purchase from freedom from slavery. This is the language that Paul is using in the verse we just read. So Moses' assignment was to lead Israel out of slavery in Egypt and into freedom, but not just into freedom. There was a promise. There was an inheritance. They were supposed to go and inherit the promised land. And God spoke the last, the last plague that was coming upon Egypt was the death of the firstborn. And so God told his children, told Israel, sacrifice a Passover lamb, put the blood of the lamb on the, on the doorposts, and when the angel of death comes throughout the land, he will pass over those homes which have the blood on the door. That's where the phrase Passover comes from. They are delivered. They are redeemed. They are purchased out of slavery. They go out into the wilderness. Forty days later, they are at Mount Sinai. Fire comes down from heaven. God meets Moses on the mountain. And mountain, uh, excuse me, God gives the law to Moses and his people. Forty days after Passover. That's Pentecost. This is the first Pentecost, which was a story that every Jew knew and every Jew celebrated. And then centuries later, Israel is enslaved again, as are the Gentiles, to the spiritual principles of the world or to the law. But this time, God doesn't send Moses to bring them out of captivity. God sends his own son, Jesus, who was also sacrificed on what day? Passover. Jesus went to the cross on Passover. It's why Scripture says he is our Passover lamb. He sacrificed on Passover to deliver us all from slavery and to begin a new exodus. So now we are slaves not from Egypt, but from the law and from sin, and free to become God's children. But there is also an inheritance, because 40 days after Passover, on Pentecost, fire once again falls, and this time God gives not the law, but his own spirit. And it's the giving of his spirit that turns his people into his true children in their innermost being. So Paul is saying, guys, what Jesus did was the true exodus. The other exodus just painted a picture of what was going to happen. If, if like me, it, it helps to see it, you're kind of a visual learner, let me, let me throw it up on the screens. 
The first exodus was from slavery in Egypt, the second from slavery to sin and the law. In the first exodus, the people were set free because of the blood of the Lamb. The second exodus, they're purchased by the blood of Jesus. The law was given at Pentecost of the first exodus, and the Spirit is given at Pentecost in the second emphasis, or Pentecost, excuse me, exodus. God has a people, and this major distinction after the second exodus is God has a family. Verse 6, assuming we are his family, Paul says, because we are his children, his adopted adult children with right of inheritance, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. Now you are no longer a slave, but God's own child, adult son. And since you are his child, God has made you his heir. God has adopted you. And the sign that you have been adopted, Paul says, is something happens in your heart where what you begin to pray naturally out of your heart is the same prayer that Jesus prayed. And when Jesus taught us to pray, how did he teach us to pray? Our Father in heaven. Do you know that was a radical departure? Father was not how Jews addressed God. He was Yahweh. And the word that Jesus chose, Abba, is a word that means daddy. But it doesn't mean daddy like a little kid. This is a word that an adult child would say. It, it doesn't have anything to do with the age of the child. It has everything to do with the familiarity and the intimacy that that child had in relation to their father. And so Paul is saying, guys, you've been adopted into his family the spirit of his son is inside of you, which can lead you to call to God, to see God as your loving heavenly father. Why the stink are you guys still obsessing about the law? You get to see, you get to relate to, you get to love God this way. This is what you have been invited into. And Paul's going to go on, and we'll, we'll get into it next week, about the things that are available to us as his children, what our inheritance looks like. But, but guys, it's, it's so much more than just, just forgiveness and freedom from guilt. We get to experience the same things Jesus experienced. Intimate relationship with the Father, joy, peace, self-control. We get to be a part of his kingdom work. God begins to express himself not only to us, but through us. But this only is possible if we surrender our lives to Christ in faith, trusting in him for his forgiveness and our salvation, and relating to God as a father to whom we go directly rather than looking for a babysitter. Here's what Paul, Paul is asking the Galatians in a nutshell in this part of his letter. You want to be a son? Or do you want to be a slave? And son is men and women. He's told him the son has a father. The servant has a master. Which would you prefer? He says the son has the same nature as the father. We receive the spirit of his son. The slave does not. He would go on to say the son is rich. The servant is poor. Owns nothing. And maybe... Maybe most importantly, this one. The son obeys out of love. The slave obeys out of fear. 
Jesus is talking to his disciples in John 14. He says this, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. I, I used to read that as Jesus kind of with his arms folded, really irritated, going, well, if you love me, you'd obey. But that's not what this means. He says, if you and I are connected at a heart level, if you love me, what, what your natural response to do is going to be obedient. And somehow this got twisted in my head at some point where I thought it would say something like, if you obey my commands, I will love you. But nowhere does it say that. It says, if you love me, if you allow me to adopt you into my family, then because of the depth of our relationship, you begin to long to do the things that you didn't do before. The nature of our relationship with God has always been intended to be centered in love and not in fear. When Nicodemus looked at Jesus and said, what the heck is going on? He said, listen, because God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Love has always been God's motivation and love has always been God's invitation. When I realize what God has done for me, when I, when I receive his spirit, I, I experience adoption. My, my heart leads me to do those things that my will just didn't let me do. I just wonder this morning, who needs to be reminded that God is a loving heavenly father and not an angry taskmaster? There is nothing I read in what Paul has written so far to the church in Galatia that says if you get it right, you'll be in good standing with God. He actually called them morons. I qualify. What comes out of us in response to God should be a response to love that we have received. Not a fear or a, any other kind of a motivation. And I feel like there might be some of that in the room this morning. And I really feel like the Holy Spirit is wanting to free us from that burden that sense of disappointing God or not being worthy of his love or not. That's nothing he's ever intended for us. That's how the slave relates to their master, not the son to their father. Would you bow your heads with me for just a moment? Maybe afford some privacy to those near you. Close your eyes. I'm going to start here. This this relationship begins with placing our trust in Jesus for our salvation. That word salvation can also be translated rescue. A lot of times we spend a lot of our energy trying to rescue ourselves from whatever we're walking through. But it's not until we acknowledge our own sinfulness, our own brokenness, confess it to God and place our trust in Him for our rescue that we're saved. And as we're saved, we're adopted. If you're here with us this morning and you've never put your trust in Christ for your salvation, you've never said to him, my paraphrase, I'm a sinner and I need to be rescued. And I'm going to put my trust in what you did on the cross to make me right with the Father and cleanse my sins. If you've never prayed that, but you're here this morning, you're like, John, I think this is the day 
I want to say that to Jesus. While these heads are bowed and these eyes are closed, would you just raise your hand high enough for me to see? Because I want to agree with you as I pray for you. I see you. Thank you. I see you. I see you. Thank you. I see you too in the back. Thank you. I see you. Anyone else? I see you just right there to my left. Yep, I see you, brother. I see you. Thank you. I see you here to my left. You can put your hands down. But I'm going to ask one more time because I think there's someone else here. I don't want you to miss this opportunity to meet Jesus this way. Somebody feels like they're, thank you. Thank you. I see you. I see you. And I see you and you. Yep. And more importantly, Jesus sees you and you. Yeah. Didn't want this moment to pass you by. Jesus, you see these hands. Guys, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something. I don't know the last time we did this together. But we're going to pray together. I'm going to give you the words, but you're going to supply the heart. So we're going to pray a prayer to Jesus. He's hearing you. I'm just going to help those of you who are wrestling with the language to say it. So I'll say it, and then you pray it after me. Everyone in this room, for some of us it's a good reminder, but I don't want anybody ever to feel like they're praying this prayer alone. Heavenly Father, I believe that you love me, and I can hear you calling me. I believe your son died for my sins. I believe the grave couldn't hold him and he rose again. I surrender my life to you now. My will, my hopes, my dreams, I give to you. Forgive me my sins and change me. Help me to receive your love and to live as your child. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, while these heads are still bowed, just a couple other groups of people I want to talk to for just a second. If you're here this morning and you've been doing your best to follow Jesus, serve Jesus, honor Jesus, but you've been relating to him as a taskmaster instead of a father who loves you, and you would say today, John, I just, I really need God to break me free of that. I, I want to be able to experience his love. I want to see him as one who loves me. But I've just been so conditioned to have to get it right all the time. If that would describe where you find yourself this morning, would you just raise your hand high enough for me to see? Because I want to pray for you. Yeah, gosh, lots of us. This is something many of us struggle with. Yep. No shame in that. No shame in that. You can put your hands down. Last group of people I want to pray for. If you would just say, for whatever reason, John, today, I just really need to experience the love of God. I just really, I just really need his love to wash over me. I need to know that he loves me. Would you raise your hand? Yeah, most of us. Let's pray. Jesus, you see our hands lifted, mine as well. God, you move in response to our heart's cry. You are a God who is always postured, anticipating a movement towards you because you're prepared to move even further toward us. You've told us if we draw near to you, you draw near to us. 
So Lord God, where false constructs have found their way into our minds that have skewed our view of you and made you the angry taskmaster instead of the loving father, Lord, your word says we have the authority to cast down those high imaginations and we do that now in Jesus' name. Bring clarity. Bring godly perspective. Lord, I ask that the love of God would begin to wash over every man, every woman, every child in this room. Lord, that like a river, it would it would just sweep away the just the junk that finds itself in the riverbed. The flotsam, the jetsam, the garbage that just gets tangled up. That, that we might have a free and clean channel, Lord God, through which your spirit, your life, and your love might flow. We trust you to do this. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We hope you enjoyed today's message. Please visit us at mylfc.com for more information about our church. Thank you so much for listening.